The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So this is sort of our Legends series this week. It is. We're very happy to have in the studio with us a Naval Institute legend, uh, a guy that I've known since he was a commander. Me too. And a guy that America knows now uh, through uh, myriad means, including his uh, appearances on MSNBC and NBC. Um, But we're going to talk primarily about the Naval Institute and its utility and uh, what he's done with it and for it and so forth. And we're here on the eve of his relinquishing the chairmanship of the board of directors of the Naval Institute. He's had two terms. And so we'll talk about all of this. So Admiral Stavridis, thank you very much for coming to the Proceedings Podcast today. It's my pleasure. And uh, whenever I think of legends, I I think of a little uh, way that people can help put themselves in perspective. And uh, we'll make this the the arc of Stavridis. So, the arc of Stavridis. <laughs> so it begins with, you know, you're you're out there, you're doing a few good things in your career. Maybe you're like a lieutenant, maybe you publish an article, and the refrain becomes, who is this Stavridis guy? And then, you know, things go along and maybe you get some lucky breaks, things get better, and people start to say, Yeah, this this guy Stavridis, he's he's going places. And then Eventually, if you're really lucky, it turns into, get me Stavridis. We got to solve this problem. But then you keep going in your career and people say, you know, whatever happened to Stavridis? And then at the far end of the arc, it becomes, who is Stavridis? Just like it was back at the beginning. And I think my point is that all of our careers, all of our legendary accomplishments, they're all part of that arc eventually. And so you have to approach it with a sense of humor and some humility. But thank you for that very kind introduction. Yes, sir. Well, that, you're that, certainly not at the part of the arc where people are going, who is Stavridis? <laughs> right, right. Um, but it's a little bit like Dead Poet Society, right? You know, that, that scene with Robin Williams who's, you know, looking at the you know the pictures of those classes long gone. And, and I remember you wrote a proceedings article about, I think, about Shipmate magazine, right? And about watching classes progress over time from when they're just graduated ensigns and they're in flight school or SWAS or whatever. And then as they're, you know, getting married and having children and and taking command and then taking major command and then retiring from the Navy and moving on. And that was a great piece, maybe 25 years ago by the time I met you. It was. And it, it, it was called a long Form one, like formation one, which in which these surface warriors in the crowd will identify as when ships get in a line and right. drive together yep. a form one. And I was reaching for that idea of an unbroken chain. And what always struck me as profound flipping those pages in Shipmate magazine were the illustrations, the photographs. So you would see these people as very young, and then as you say, Bill middle-aged, and then aging, and then gradually those photographs 
fade out. And um, again, having that perspective in your life, I think, is a very helpful thing. So, so let's go back to the beginning of, of your uh, association with the Naval Institute, because, because that's sort of a, a urban either myth or, or, or a f- legend, legend, uh, again, to use legend again. Um, so you're a, you're a midshipman first class or you're, you're no, no, I was a third class. You were a third class. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that time, the Naval Institute was located down at Preble Hall, right. Um, which the Naval Institute huh. built as a gift to the Naval Academy in the 1930s. That's not when you were there, of course. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you wander in full of curiosity and wondering I, what this is and, and what happened. I did. And it, it actually starts a few years earlier when I'm a senior in high school and I'm the editor of the school newspaper. And I love writing. I've always loved to write and get involved. So when I come to the Naval Academy, I started to ask around, well, what's our newspaper here? And of course, there isn't one. Uh, at that time, there was something called the Log Magazine, which has had a kind of a checkered history. It's been on again, off again. But at the time, it was a humor and sports magazine. And then I would see copies of this magazine proceedings laying around, and I'd think, well, maybe there's some synergy there. Um, so I joined the staff of the Log Magazine and then uh, took it upon myself to walk into Proceedings Magazine and talk to Fred Rainbow. And that was the beginning of a long partnership between uh, me, Fred Rainbow, the editor for many, many years of Proceedings, and also for the Log Magazine. And I'm proud to say, partly because of the influence of working with Fred and publishing, um, I eventually became the editor of the Log Magazine as a junior, as a second-class midshipman. And then I can give you a newsflash. I was Salty Sam for the class of 76. I think we knew that. Right. That's that, Again, for the academy grads, that means a lot. For If you're not an academy grad, Salty Sam is in an anonymous column that shows up in proceedings, and you don't know who Salty Sam is for their tenure. And then at the very end of your tenure, you, it is you're revealed. revealed. Yes, yes. Exactly. So the point here is that um, having also been an English major here and having cherished the written word and the ability to read and learn, um, proceedings became part of that dimension of the voyage for me here. So a few minutes ago, just before we started the podcast, you you came in and talked to the entire staff of the Naval Institute downstairs in our foyer, uh, and and you started those remarks, uh, brief remarks, with with one comment that I'd like you to share with our listeners. Well, I said to the the team here that they should be very proud because they are part of an idea, and it's a big idea. And the idea is that knowledge matters, especially knowledge of the oceans, knowledge of the sea services, and knowledge of the national security of the United States. And if you're part of the team here at the U.S. Naval Institute, you're part of that big idea. And that is a pretty wonderful way to spend your days. Your first proceedings article, I think, was published in 1976. Uh, What was that one about? And then how did you... How did you and proceedings and, and your relationship with Fred sort of interweave in your career? And how did it impact what you did and where you went uh, as you moved up, the, up, you know, up in ranks? Uh, the first proceedings article that I vividly remember uh, was about a year after I graduated. So it might have been 77, but it's in that range. I was an ensign in the U.S. Navy, and it was an article about ship handling. And it was, at the time, imagine this, there were brand new Spruance-class destroyers. In fact, uh, 
talking about the arc of Stavridis, another way to measure the arc of Stavridis is that I graduated from Annapolis and was assigned to a brand new Spruance class destroyer. Uh, 30 years later, just as I made Admiral, the last Spruance class destroyers were being decommissioned and now they are long gone. Uh, but the article was about a brand new idea, which was handling one of these high-powered gas turbine, twin-screwed, uh, overdriven destroyers and the need to have new ideas and new thinking about ship handling. So the point I'd put on it, Bill, is that proceedings tends to be identified often with big strategic ideas, and those are certainly important. But I love those professional notes where we really dive in on something deep in the profession. I love Nobody Asked Me But and other columns where people take a deliberately iconoclastic tone and idea. It's kind of the salty Sam of the Naval Institute, if you will. Uh, but my recollection is my first piece was about handling a destroyer, and I'm, I'm proud to have written that piece. And interestingly, um, I then wrote a piece when I was a lieutenant commander about how to handle a Ticonderoga-class cruiser, slightly different characteristics, although kind of the same. And then uh, when I was a commander and I was the second commander of the second Arleigh Burke destroyer, I wrote a piece on how to handle an Arleigh Burke destroyer that I think is the best technical piece I've ever written because I, at that point I brought, you know, 17 years of ship handling and experience to this idea of how to drive this brand new style of destroyer. So I think that was a, a particularly good piece. And again, the point is not me. The point is uh, no one of us is as smart as all of us thinking together. And that's what the Naval Institute and I think particularly Proceedings Magazine represents as a way that everyone can be part of a large conversation and therefore make all of us better. Thus, the idea of the big idea of being part of knowledge of the seas in this profession. As our chair, uh, you pick out a few articles every month in proceedings yeah. and you write handwritten thank you notes or, or congratulatory notes to the authors. And, and in, in the last two years, you've done that for two articles that sort of continue that line of thinking about okay. ship handling, right? One was about handling the Zumwalt, yeah. uh, which was really fascinating, you know, for, for anybody. And I wasn't a ship handler. I wasn't a SWO, but just reading about you know, this tumble home hull and a different... And the, know, size. the size. I mean, this it, is right? a, a 16,000-ton destroyer. Right. right. Okay, that's just right. a contradiction in terms. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I thought that was a fascinating article to yeah, read. We had another one uh, about the LPDs. Correct. Right? The San Antonio class, because we're now up to, I don't know, 10 or so of those. And so, you know, there's a number of them out there. And a lot of young officers will be going out to San Antonio class ships. And how do you handle those? It was great. Thank you. And I will say, um, I I think that that's something the surface Navy has done quite well. I, I don't see as many articles about airmanship as I would like to. I see a lot of very good articles about the tactics of air combat and how to integrate sensors. But uh, I would encourage young aviators uh, to think that airmanship is something that I think would lend itself to uh, really terrific articles. I'd, I'd love to see an article. I'm not a pilot. I'd love to see an article about what it's like or how do you fly a joint strike fighter, which has got to be totally different. And it's, uh, you know, it's just a different aircraft. It's stealthy. It's 
I'd love to see that article. But I think I, I think a lot of those end up in the Top Gun Journal or end up in uh, the, the Navy Safety. Uh, yeah, but I think type, the Admiral makes a great point. It's a great call to action in, in, right. in that people don't conceive of, a, of, of proceedings as the forum for that, but it really is. I think that an analogy is, is yeah, sound. I, I'd love to have it. Um, right? yeah. yeah, so if you're out there, you know, uh, heads up and, and get to work. Or how about those P8s. I mean, what could be more different sure. than a P3 lumbering along and all of a sudden a jet-powered 737-based high glamour P3-like aircraft? I'd love to see that article. Uh, how do I you like fly it. one of those? Right, right. And what's different between them and that sort of thing? You mentioned that the log sort of goes in and out of fashion in its history. It, it's, uh, you know, I was on the staff as a cartoonist. Uh, we were talking to Admiral Carter um, earlier, and he was the editor when I was a cartoonist right. of the log. Um, in what I think was its heyday in terms of uh, impact, and everybody looked forward to reading and that sort of thing. Um, but I think you can also say that about proceedings, right? And and so we're at the table here, all believers, courtesy of Fred Rainbow as our lamplighter, in the Dare Factor and the Independent Forum. But as you've gone through your career, what did you do to encourage your wardroom or anybody under your your charge uh, that it was okay to uh, uh, embrace the dare factor? Uh, I'll give you a couple of practical examples. One is you just have to put your personal skin in the game and write an article um, that you know kind of pushes the edge. And, um, you know, it's not uh, the dare factor to write about how to handle a destroyer, uh, but uh, I wrote an article about why executive officers on aircraft carriers should be SWOs. Um, and my rationale was, and, and I still firmly believe that, that um, if the captain of an aircraft carrier, which should be a pilot, um, needs assistance or advice or help on anything, he or she can turn to an entire wardroom full of senior aviators, right? <laughs> Whereas, including his executive officer, whereas he really doesn't have a, a senior SWO typically. And I think that would be a great balance in those. And we've seen that, for example, in the LPDs and the LHDs, which typically will alternate between a SWO and, a, uh, and an aviator. And I think that balance is very good. And, you know, not to go all Jerry Maguire on you, but I think SWOs and aviators complete each other. <laughs> In a, in a command environment. And so uh, that was a controversial article. I had a, I had a number of death threats from senior aviators. <laughs> uh, uh, and it was one of many times people have said to me, you know, Stavridis, your career is over. Um, another one would be, and this was not a proceedings event, but uh, the kind of iconic strategy of the Navy as we emerged from the Cold War was called from the sea, dot, 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 from the sea. And uh, the Navy staff had developed, a, you know, quite a reasonable package, and they sent it up to the Secretary of the Navy. And unfortunately for me, at the time, I was the Secretary of the Navy's uh, special assistant and speechwriter. So he said, hey, Stavridis, why don't you take a look at this and, you know, make it a little better. So I did what he said, and I thought made it a little better. And, of course, you know, the Navy staff had hand-tooled every single word, every period, every comma. And uh, so the secretary just flipped it back to the Navy staff and said, hey, this is what I want to go with. And, and the N-35 at the time, then Vice Admiral 
Snuffy Smith, uh, his head literally exploded, and I heard it from a great distance. And he called me down and pretty much told me my career was over. I was a, a junior commander, and I thought, well, my career is over. I went home and told my wife that. Eventually, I became great friends with Admiral Smith, and, and we worked out the differences in that paper. Um, but the first answer to the question, how do you move the dare factor, is you dare. You try it, and you have to take some risk in doing that, I think. A second way to do it, um, again, which I did, when I was executive officer of the cruiser Antietam, I got our wardroom together and said, we are going to write an article about how Aegis cruisers, these high-tech, uh, built for great power competition ships, can be used in uh, low-level conflict, can be used in the littoral, can be used in counterterrorism operations. And there are a thousand good ways to do and think about that. And so we got the whole wardroom together. Our captain, Larry Eddingfield, headlined it. I'm the executive officer, and then it was submitted by the wardroom of USS Antietam and published. That's a way to kind of do it with a group of people, do it with two or three people. I think that's a, a second way in which you can kind of move the needle. I mean, that's a very powerful byline. Has that been done? It has. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it we, has. we've seen it a couple not, times. Not I've recently, seen it. but oh, yeah, over the years. Yeah, and I, I, I applaud it. I think yeah. it's a great. No, we that's, that's we really had, cool. uh, in fact, uh, it was. Five or six officers from a cruiser about a year ago wrote a piece uh, on. It was more on um, what was that one on Bill? I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank, but it was about um, uh, sort of handling. Uh, it was a cruiser and, and managing a watch bill and managing a senior watch officer and keeping keeping the the, the uh, engineering or the the um, the, the, the uh, department heads in the in the. Um, on the bridge, right? Keeping department heads. Oh, in that, I remember in that, that right. piece. Yeah, it was a really good no, piece. It's it was a good like, example. We we did this. We kept our department heads in the in the watch rotation. You know, not every day and not every hour, but you know, we we kept them so that we had that cadre of senior ship handlers that were ready to do this, and we weren't just relying all on the JOs all the time. Yeah. So I was at SNA Surface Navy Association last winter um, at our booth there and. A guy in SDBs comes up and uh, lieutenant commander, and it turns out he's at PERS 41. Um, and he's talking about an issue, and I did the old Fred Rainbow judo move, which is that would be a great proceedings article, right? And he goes, um, no, I don't want to write for proceedings because I don't want that kind of visibility. And I was like, what? You know, and so I was sort of concerned about his attitude towards the forum. Mm -hmm. And wanted to ensure this was not some sort of a uh, systemic attitude across his year group or whatever, you know. And so that's why I ask about how do we instill the dare factor? Mm -hmm. um, is it something the CO should do? Is it something that peers do among each other? I mean, here we are in this studio with some of our interns, hopefully instilling them with a, you know, at the earliest levels, a fundamental sense of what is the forum for. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, you know. Over my time on active duty, I, I can't say that, and maybe this is an attack air thing, that people were terribly involved in in the uh, in the forum. Right? I think I think to be brutally honest, I think um, aviation, naval aviation, doesn't resonate to this to the degree that the surface and the submarine communities do, and certainly the intelligence communities and others. And I think Ward, it's not. Um, attitudinal, it's temporal. And what I mean by that is, as you well know, 
to succeed and move on in naval aviation, you got to fly, fly, fly. That's really the metric that's been built into the promotion system. So the time factor for pilots um, doesn't lend itself to jumping out and going to postgraduate school where you have the immense luxury of time uh, when you can read and write and analyze and think and publish. It doesn't typically lend itself to jumping off to do a federal executive fellowship. It, it's just harder, not, I think, because aviators don't want to do that, but because I think naval aviation, this is not for me to judge, but the judgment of senior naval aviators has been um, what we do is dangerous. It's hard. Um, our lives hang on this every second. And therefore, what we are going to ask of our naval aviators as they move along is that they put time in their craft. And so I think that is part of it. Um, having said that, I'd, I'd prefer to see our naval aviators um, carve out a little more time. And again, I don't want to paint this as a black and white thing. I certainly know some of the very smartest, most innovative, good writers are naval aviators. Art Sabrowski leaps to mind. Uh, Bus Snodgrass, yourself. Um, I've certainly known plenty. Um, but I think as a general community-wide proposition, I think it's um, there's less emphasis. So I, I think I, I concur. In fact, while you were speaking, I was thinking of when I had an article published in uh, one of the 92 issues of proceedings um, called It's Time to Think Profit and Loss. It came out when I was a RAG instructor. And, um, you know, some guys were, hey, uh, you know, because it was sitting there in the ready room and, and uh, you know, they passed it around and some of the guys said, oh, it's really good. And this one lieutenant commander was like, why did you do that? Right? Why? Wh like, seriously, like, why did you do that? Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have an answer for him, right? Except, well, I thought it was a problem that could be addressed and we could bandy it about. I mean, you know, and just the fact that he asked that sort of suggested that there's a percentage of any given wardroom ready room that are not interested in in the independent forum, right? Oh, in sure. Life of the mind and, and that yeah. sort of well, thing. Well, let's go back to Alfred Thayer Mahan, one of the founders of the Institute. Um, and, you know, the famous line in one of his fitness reports is, it is not the business of naval officers to write books. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. So that remains to this day. So how did you encourage along the way people to just read, right? I mean, because I think that's sort of a lost art at some level. Right. Um, two different things. Um, writing is really the dare factor. Um, reading, of course, is something we can do, you know, in the privacy of our own homes. Um, I'm smiling because uh, even there, you'll see in some wardrooms, there'll be a tendency to really want to read books and talk about books and other wardrooms, you know, not so much. You're definitely slinking off to your stateroom to read a book. But uh, first and foremost, as you move along, it's to um, physically sit in your chair on the bridge. I did this often as a captain and just read and uh, not just uh, – message traffic and email, but also uh, good novels. And I'll give you a practical example. When I had command of Barry for close to three years down in the Norfolk Harbor, the whole wardroom got deeply into reading Patrick O'Brien's um, extraordinary 20-volume um, set of novels. Some people have called it the longest single novel in 20th century was written mostly in the 21st in the 20th century and 20th century history 
Um, it's thousands of pages, but it's a fascinating read about a British sea captain and his uh, faithful surgeon, Stephen Matterin. Jack Aubrey is the name of the captain. And I think words, people are encouraged when they see each other reading. Secondly, um, I've always, from the earliest times I've had people working for me after I graduated from Annapolis, would recommend books to people and say, hey, here's something the division ought to look at or the department ought to look at. And um, I'll tell you someone else who's a, kind of a peer of mine. He's a bit older than I am, but I always think of as quite iconic in this regard is Jim Mattis, General Jim Mattis, who famously you know, traveled everywhere he went with a footlocker full of books. And uh, a lot of it is just sharing ideas through literature. And, and really, I'm, I, I love nonfiction. I read a fair amount of nonfiction, but I think reading novels unlocks a place in your mind that um, makes you makes you better at whatever you want to do. And, and so to, to conclude, um, I ended up writing a book um, published by the Naval Institute called The Leader's Bookshelf, 50 Books That Make You a Better Leader. And what I tried to do in that was just do a synopsis, short, snappy, punchy, pull some leadership lessons out of books as diverse as to Kill a Mockingbird uh, by Lee Harper uh, or Killer Angels by Michael Shara. Um, and I, I'll just hit one last bell on that, which is the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Most people read that when they're 14 to 16 years old, and it's sort of a, you know, it's a little story about a young girl in the South and her, her father's in a courtroom drama, and they don't give it much more thought than that. That's a book that deserves rereading in your 30s and 40s and 50s. I recently read it in my 50s, and it, it just knocked me down. It's a book about coming of age. It's a book about young women in a male-dominated societies. It's a book about injustice and racism. And above all, it's a book about doing the hard right thing, not the easy wrong thing. That's what Atticus Finch does in defending a black man in a courtroom in the Deep South, and he knows he will pay a cost for doing so, but he does the hard right thing. It's a very powerful book about a lot of different things. It's an example of how a novel, uh, and one that's very approachable, that young people can read, can unlock so much. So you're about to relinquish, unfortunately, the chairmanship tomorrow. Um, and you have stated with with uh, a lot of regret, um, you don't willingly <laughs> relinquish the chairmanship. It's the rules. Um, so it's a good opportunity to sort of look back. Um, so put your uniform back on, and and what were some of the high points as as you know as you considered as this you know this again arc of an active duty Stavridis? What 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 are some of the things that you you think of right off the top? Throughout my career, yes. certainly. Um, so I, I graduate from Annapolis uh, in the height of the Cold War in the late 70s, and it's all about being on big high-tech platforms on the deep blue ocean, setting up for long-range strikes, defending the carrier, uh, chasing submarines in the North Atlantic. It's a very distinct great power struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, that operationally occupies kind of the first 15 years of my career or so. 
and just as I am uh, headed toward command of a destroyer, ready to go out to sea and chase Soviet submarines, the wall comes down, and the entire narrative flips, and briefly we have this period of American, I don't want to say supremacy, but at, at this post-Cold War moment, there's a chunk of time from about 1990 until 9-11, about a decade, where the United States really is the dominant actor in this kind of new world order. The unipolar moment. The unipolar moment, and boy, it went by like a flash. It really did. And then 9-11 happens, and this becomes kind of the third act in my career when it's all about counterterrorism. And I become, I'm in the Pentagon, I literally see the airplane as it hits the Pentagon, I'm on the side of the building where the airplane struck about 150 feet to my right as I watched it in complete incomprehension. Your mind doesn't, it can't process that. You know, we all can kind of think our way through or have been in maybe a car accident or seen something traumatic, but watching an airplane hit a building while you're in it is, is it just, you can't process it. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, that moment, of course, changes everything, and I become the head of Deep Blue, which is the think tank created at that moment to find new ways to employ our Navy in counterterrorism and what became known as the War on Terrorism in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, so that next stage of my career ward, which really runs for the final 20 years of my career, roughly, um, is this war on terrorism. And so just as we've been talking throughout this interview, the arc of our lives, what's happening right now? We're back to great power competition. We are back to not chasing the Soviet Union, but I think getting ready for, let us hope not, but very much a potential Cold War with China potentially with Russia acting as a junior partner to China. And uh, it's extraordinary for me to think uh, over from 1976 to 2019, over that 40-year period, we've gone from great power competition through a unipolar moment to a counterterrorism battle to another great power competition. And, and what that ought to tell us is that there are cycles and rhythms in geopolitics and just as there are in human lives. And number two is something else will happen that will startle us and change the face of what we are contending with. And so uh, resilience, I think, is crucial in the ability to change an organization. And that's why I'm um, encouraged, for example, with what the Navy's doing in cyber and cybersecurity. And uh, I think that and artificial intelligence are going to be the next big wave with which we must contend. And for the last six years as chairman of the Naval Institute, what have been the big things that you and, and Pete Daly, our CEO, have worked together to uh, to get us to where we are? And, and what do you think we need to do for the next three to five years? Well, this sounds perhaps somewhat prosaic, but we're in the midst of uh, concluding an effort to build a conference center here. And I think this will be a very powerful development for the Naval Institute. We found um, funding for it. We're going to build it. It's going to be spectacular. Uh, it's going to be part of this beautiful beach hall. And it'll provide a forum, a place where 
as we were talking about earlier, where we can come together, exchange ideas, know one of us as smart as all of us. That's a very powerful um, entity, and it'll be the Jack Taylor Conference Center, named after a, a former sailor and someone who uh, has really supported the Naval Institute. Um, secondly, we have moved the Naval Institute into a much firmer financial footing. And we've done that with a combination of economies, of uh, some technical financial things within the Institute, um, ramping up fundraising and finding real support. I think that'll be something I feel very good about over the six years if you look at where we were and where we are now on a financial basis. And third, I think the conference programs have gotten better and better and better. And again, the Naval Institute is like a machine with a, a different set of gears for the proceedings, Bill, where you're the editor, for the uh, press where we publish our books. Um, but really that that conferencing idea where we really get people together in real time to examine ideas, I think is very powerful. So I've been very happy with the, how our conferences, notably our annual conference in February called West in San Diego, has become the premier, uh, certainly maritime defense event in the world. And I, I would argue among the very best defense conferences, not just maritime, but defense. So I think those three are are all important. And then I'll also say that we've improved and brought new energy and new talent into the Naval Institute to include both of you. Uh, Bill Hamlet and Ward Carroll Thank are you. both good examples of superb Naval operational officers who have lived the life of the mind and now are having a chance to be part of this big idea at the Naval Institute. And I see uh, a number of very strong candidates who have joined the Naval Institute and are now part of this idea. Well, you know, it's it's not a job for us, right? And that makes it easy. Yeah, it's right? a calling. It's a, it is a calling. And, it's, 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 uh, and we are acolytes of uh, Fred Rainbow in that regard. Um, so let's kind of go big picture then. You know, how how are we doing as a military writ large in terms of the program of record and all that sort of thing? And, and how are we doing as a nation? And, you know, put on your Supreme Allied Command hat, um, and and so, how are we how are we trending? What 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 what's happening in the in the big world? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you three trends that I think ought to worry us a bit, and then I'll tell you three things that I think are actually going pretty well. Um, one trend that ought to concern us, and I alluded to it briefly a moment ago, is this growing sense of alignment between Russia and China. We've not seen that. And um, during the Cold War, these were two very distinct entities. Um, as they draw closer together, it creates a kind of a lodestone for authoritarian regimes to look at the two of them and say, well, you know, maybe I want to be on that team. And so I worry about that confluence award. Um, secondly, we ought to worry about our vulnerabilities in cyber and cybersecurity. Um, we are immensely vulnerable, particularly our electric grid, and we don't have time to dive into the specifics of that, but only cyber as a security issue touches us from the highest levels of our national security through our finances 
into the most intimate details of our personal lives. Think about what that supercomputer you're carrying around in your pocket says about you or your family. So cyber, I think, is uh, increasingly a zone of conflict and concern. And lastly, it's climate. I think we ought to worry more than we do about climate change, global warming, and I don't want to open a debate about uh, causes and solutions, but I'll make an observation as a simple sailor who has sailed these waters. The ice is melting. It's melting in the north. It's melting in the south. That will influence the oceans, their composition, their salinity, their alkalinity, and the production of photosynthetic activity in the oceans, which is where 70% of the air we breathe comes from. That's the big long-term problem. So, yeah, we don't be concerned about those things. I'll tell you three things that are going well. One is the rise of India. I think India is a massive country which will remain firmly democratic. It will, over time, draw closer to the United States and Europe. And I think that is a very rich basket of geostrategic opportunity for the United States. Secondly, an obvious one, but is tech. It is, um, in the broadest sense, it's nanotechnology, materials, infotechnology, um, all of the advancements in science, and particularly artificial intelligence. And that'll be a bit of a two-edged sword, but I think, broadly speaking, we'll continue to draw positives from that as the century unspools. And lastly, I'll say that when the history of this century is written 300 years from now, it won't be about the rise of China. It won't be about the rise of India. I think it'll be about the rise of women. I think it will be remembered as a century, the 21st century, which we are still just beginning, a century in which women truly enter the workforce, enter leadership positions that certainly happened in places around the world. But those trend lines are moving in the right direction. Think about where women were 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago. That's accelerating at market speed. And that means we will put, you can almost pick a number, the global economy's $80 trillion dollars but that's with 40% of the world's population parked on the sidelines. Put all those bright human beings into the workforce, give them opportunities to lead. I think that will be a very positive force moving forward. How about America? Where is America in 50 years? What's, what's trending there? I think our country uh, will continue to be a global actor of significant importance. I am not a declinist about the United States, nor am I a triumphalist. I don't think the United States wants or needs or should be the world's policeman as the old adage used to be. But I do believe we have a significant role to play because of our rich resources, our extraordinary geographic position, our ability to assimilate immigrants, if I have one particular quarrel with the current administration, it is my fear that they are sending signals that will diminish the desire of individuals to want to come to the United States. Um, when I look at the basket of resources and abilities of the United States, I'm quite optimistic about 
the country. And the biggest concern I have, Ward, is the increasing politicization, the, the, the way in which the more extreme elements in our body politic have found voice. And I think, you know, leaving aside the 2020 election, the, the real question is, will we find our way back to um, what we have experienced in other periods in our history where we could reach across political division to find compromise? I, I, on a hopeful note, I will point out that it's fashionable today to say, oh, the country's never been more divided. You know, we, we, we just can't get along. Really? Try 1860. You know, we had a civil war. Uh, try the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression. Um, try 1968. I'm old enough to remember what um, violent riots throughout the country, um, both about Vietnam and about race, looked like. We've had plenty of moments of significant division in this country, and we tend to work our way through them. I'm pretty optimistic about where we end up. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, and uh, our CEO, Pete Daly, has is, uh, is given us the, uh, the, the, high the, the, the high sign through the, commercial. Through, yeah, through the window of uh, Studio B here. So, uh, Admiral Stavridis, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for being uh, a member of the forum for over 40 years as a proceedings author, also as a Naval Institute press author. Uh, and as our chair for the last six years. It's Thank been, you. Been I'm going to close on one last thought because you were nice enough, both of you, to allude to my service as chairman of the board and also because um, so often these days people say to me and to anybody in uniform, you know, thank you for your service. I always like to close a talk by saying there are a lot of ways to serve this country, not just the military. Certainly, we're all proud of our military, our uniform military. How about our diplomats? How about our CIA officers? How about our police? How about our firemen? How about our EMTs? How about school teachers in rural South Carolina teaching packed classrooms for $36,000 a year? You think they're serving the country? Amen. I do. Amen. How about Teach for America? How about Volunteer for America? How about the Peace Corps? There's a lot of ways to serve, so I'll close by saying anybody who's listening, think about how you can serve the country and how you can encourage others and find ways to do that. And if we did more of that, we would find ourselves coming back toward the center. So let me close by saying to everyone out there, thank you for your service. Find ways to serve. Well, thank you, sir. And the good news is that you'll remain as an emeritus status. So uh, this is just farewell, not goodbye. So thanks again. And uh, as we say at the close here, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time. The Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by Hydroid. Hydroid's small, medium, and large class Remus unmanned underwater vehicles are used worldwide to collect valuable data in waters up to 6,000 meters deep for mine countermeasures, hydrography, and search and rescue operations. Learn more about Remus UUVs at www.hydroid.com. <laughs>